listening in every week this fall in a conversation. We're like the, the fly on the wall. We're observing these conversations that people are having with Jesus. And we're trying to learn something about Jesus. We're trying to learn something about ourselves. And we're trying to learn how to live as we walk home. But in order to appreciate these conversations, as you know, they all come in a context. So we're, we're just jumping into this room and listening, but there's something that's happened to get us to that point. So I want us to understand the flow of what's happened pre- previous to Romans, I mean, to Matthew 8. You notice in verse 1, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds are following. And if you would turn back with me to chapter 5, verse 1. You'll notice that it says this, seeing the crowds, these same crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down and he began to teach his disciples. So in chapter 5, verse 1, a bunch of people are following Jesus and he takes this moment to teach them. And he teaches them what becomes, we know as the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Mountain. He goes up to the mountain, he sits down and teaches them. And now in chapter 8, they're all coming back down from the mountain. And if we just were to look at this briefly, we notice these first uh, 11 verses, these beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. These are all attitudes that Jesus assumes somebody who's following after him, somebody who's coming into the kingdom of heaven, they're going to have certain attitudes. And he lets them know what those attitudes are. And then the rest of the Sermon on the Mount from chapter 5, verse 13 to the end of chapter 7 Jesus shifts from attitudes to actions. Here are certain internal attitudes. Here are certain internal characteristics you're supposed to have as a follower of Jesus. And then this is how they're supposed to play out in action. How are you supposed supposed to live your life as a follower of Christ? And so Jesus talks, talks about this in a number of different ways. And he addresses anger, lust, integrity, marriage, loving your enemies, generosity, prayer, anxiety, all these different situations, Jesus says, here's your action in those situations. And it's important to notice the very first action Jesus talks about for those who are in the kingdom of heaven. He's talked about their attitude, and the very first action he wants them to be aware of is how are you supposed to act towards those who live on the outside of the kingdom of heaven. You notice that? So I'm talking about the kingdom of heaven. I'm telling you the kingdom of heaven has come, Jesus is saying, and people are coming into the kingdom of heaven. And he says, here's your attitude as a a follower of the king. Now, the very first action I need you to be aware of is how you're supposed to act now that you're an insider to those who are on the outside. That's the very first action sort of key component of the action. And we are familiar with these verses, chapter 5, verse 13. You, you disciples, you followers of Christ, now you the church, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be salty? How will its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill. So here's how you're supposed to act towards outsiders like salt and light. 
And there's several different uh, views on how this works out, but it primarily when we think about this, salt and light, uh, salt prevents decay. Light prevents darkness. Salt prevents decay. Light prevents darkness. And so here just a few brief comments. First of all, Jesus is saying the world's in trouble. The world is in a state of decay, a, a tasteless world that has really nothing valuable. You, you keep eating thinking it's going to be satisfying, but the more you eat, the less satisfied you are. And you get into a state of decay, and it leads you into darkness. And my guess is not many of us would need a lot of convincing that the world is in this state get frustrated, you become fearful, you become anxious if you watch the news. Like, oh, where are we going? And nobody feels like it's going in a good direction. There's always a a sense of panic or anxiety. The second thing you would learn from this is that the local church is Jesus's design for the hope of the world. I want to say that again because I don't think that's what most people would actually think. The local church is the hope of the world. Jesus is saying, I'm going to put you disciples into local context. And guess what? You're going to be the salt and light. You're going to be the city that's set up on a hill. You're going to be the one that's entering into this dark and decaying world. What, a, what, what potential the local church has. But my guess is we're somewhat less convinced that this is a reality. We see the darkness around us, but then we see the local church, and it just most of the time doesn't feel like it's enough to overcome that kind of darkness or decay. The third thing we would see about salt and light is that it expends itself. It attaches to something and then expends itself. It, salt attaches to something that's decaying, and it expends itself trying to hold back that decay. Light extends itself into darkness. It's moving towards the darkness. Now, now following the Sermon on the Mount, like a great teacher would, Jesus isn't just giving dictates to his disciples. He's actually going to, to give them demonstrations. So I've said this many times. Jesus is so perfect at this. He says, maybe you're just an audible learner and I can say it and you pick it up. But a lot of people aren't audible learners. They're visual learners. So he said, in case you've missed the whole speech, I'm going to just show you what it looks like. And so he walks down the mountain and then really for the rest of Matthew, but especially here in chapter 8, he's just going to display some of the things he's been talking about on the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to look at these two very interesting conversations, these first two conversations he has with a leper and then a centurion. And I want to look at it in this way with these three words, position, posture, and faith. We're a fly on the wall. We're listening. We're, we're identifying things that are happening in this conversation. And I want to just identify them under these three headings, position, posture and faith. First of all, the position of the leper and the centurion. They're outsiders. Remember he said, the first thing I want you to do is know how to work or live according to outsiders if you're on the inside. Well, if ever there were anybody on the outside, it's these two people. Immediately Jesus 
he has this encounter with these outsiders. Leprosy, one of the most dreaded diseases, especially among the Jewish people. It physically attacks your nervous system, usually in your extremities, your hands, your nose, your feet. If it's not taken care of, those things, those parts of your body begin to fall off. It's not a disease you can hide. Can't cover up enough of your extremities so people don't know it. And equal to this physical pain is the emotional pain of being isolated. Because in the book of Leviticus, it tells you what to do with people who become leprous or even some kind of skin disease, Leviticus 13, 45. The person with such an infectious disease must cover the lower parts of his face. So we don't want to see what's happening. And then as if they come into contact with somebody or prior to coming into contact, they have to say, unclean, unclean. You don't don't want any of these people sort of coming up from behind. They need to say so you can get out of the way. And they must live alone. They must live outside the camp, Leviticus says. Actually, it would be unlawful for this man to run up to Jesus like he did. It's not hard to imagine these big crowds around Jesus, and here comes one man, unclean, unclean, and it parts like the Red Sea. Everybody peels back, and, but Jesus is standing there, and he runs up to Jesus. Here, here's a man whose position is literally on the outside. He literally has to live outside of the community. He's physically outside. He's relationally outside. He's spiritually an outsider. The centurion, he's an outsider, but in a different way. The, the Roman Empire was this massive, sprawling empire. And imagine it coming out of Rome and, and taking over Europe, taking over Turkey, taking over the Middle East, taking over parts of northern Africa. It's just this massive, sprawling empire. And in order to keep control in the empire, the Romans would send these bands of soldiers, usually in a hundred, to certain outposts. And they would make sure everybody in that geographic area stays in line. So when a a centurion shows up with his hundred soldiers, he moves into your house. He moves into your town. And even though he's inside the community, he's an outsider. It doesn't matter if you're in the Middle East or somewhere else. These guys are hated. They're, They're foreigners. They're ethnically different than us. They're politically different from us. They're actually our enemies living inside our community. And you know how hated they are is because back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about, you know, loving your enemies. And then he gives you an example. Well, what does it mean to love your enemy? Well, you know, when somebody asks you to walk a mile, what are you supposed to do? You walk that mile and then you do what? You go the extra mile. You walk the extra mile. Well, the people he's referring to are the Roman soldiers, Because they had the power to come in and say to the locals, hey, I need you to carry my equipment. And you had to stop whatever you're doing. You had to walk a mile with them. So just imagine the humiliation of that. You're doing your job. And this guy walks up and says, hey, I need you to walk a mile. And then Jesus says, when that Roman soldier does it, you're going to walk another mile with them after that. 
So now here he is, he's encountering one of these guys. He's encountering somebody who's literally on the outside of their group of people. My question is, how does Jesus react to these two people? My answer is he physically attaches himself to them. I wonder if you saw it in the text. Verse 3, for the leper, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him wonder if this could have been played in slow motion. You know, all his disciples are behind Jesus because they don't want to be near the leper. And Jesus starts reaching out his hand, you know, and the disciples are going, no, you know, just this slow motion. No, but whatever you do, Jesus, you're going to become unclean if you touch him. But they don't get there fast enough. Think about when Jesus is reaching out his hand Think about all the barriers he's breaking down. All these emotional barriers, all these relational barriers, all these physical barriers. He reaches out his hand to clean up the outside of this man's life. And of course, I don't know. But I wonder if he reached out his hand to clean up the outside, he thought... One day I'm going to reach out my hand and clean up the inside. Jesus says to the Roman centurion, I will come. I'll come to your house. I'll heal heal your servant. This is crazy. This is as crazy as touching the leper. I mean, we don't feel it, but what? What? I mean, first of all, that you would try to heal this guy. You do any kind of favor for the enemy. That We wouldn't do that. But you're going to go to his house? I mean, you're going to honor this guy by your presence? You're going to attach yourself to these kinds of people? And Jesus said, yeah, I just told you that. That's exactly what I told you about being light and salt. But now I'm showing you what it actually looks like. I'm not just telling you something and then going away. No, it actually has to happen. And you've got to attach yourself to these people who are on the outside. And Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the Roman soldier in a similar way as he touches the leper. And he breaks down these barriers of political difference and ethnic difference. Well, this salt and light Attaching itself to decay isn't just a lesson for a first century disciple. It's a lesson for, for us. So just in this, as we, we stand in the corner and watch this conversation happen, it's just a good time to just ask yourself as an individual and for us to ask ourselves as a church. I mean, we know a light city on a hill. Most of us know this kind of language, salt. But my question is, you kind of know it, but are you actually doing that? I mean, when God brings people, both, notice both these men came to Jesus. When, just when people come towards you, are you attaching yourself to them? Or are you going, oh man, I mean, you're so different than me. Ethnically, politically, relationally, physically, whatever, socioeconomically, whatever it is, I just somehow can't reach across that long chasm and attach myself but Jesus is saying that's that's exactly what I want people to do 
One of my favorite biographies is on Hudson Taylor, missionary to China. And there was a book written about him called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. And if you like biographies, this is really worth worth reading. And his spiritual secret is prayer and faith. It's not like a real secret. Hudson Taylor, I'm going to use him twice in an illustration. He went to China, and when he came back to his home, England, he's trying to create momentum for more missionaries to come to China because at that point, all the missions had taken place on the, the uh, coast of China. And he started what was called the, the China Inland Mission. So people were actually going into real darkness and decay in the inner part of China. And when he would um, talk to people about becoming missionaries and they were agreeing that they would become missionaries to China, he would tell them, now just imagine you saying, I'm, I'm interested in this. And Hudson Taylor said, great, pack all your belongings in a coffin. How many volunteers do we have now? Because the only way you're coming back is in this pine box. I mean, talk about attaching yourself. Talk about saying, I'm all in. I'm jumping into the deep end. I'm, the only way I'm coming back out is in a pine box. It, it seems crazy, does it not? Or does it seem like Jesus? Hudson Taylor was the very first China, Western missionary to China that started dressing like the Chinese people. Everybody else look Western like me. So I'm walking around China looking like this, and obviously I don't look Chinese. Pretty easy to spot that guy. But he started, he had the little hair coming out of the back. He had the, the sort of the, the, the robe, everything. He just adopted all of their sort of customs, not their religion, but their customs. And the Western missionaries thought he was crazy. Except they noticed when they went from village to village, only one person got invited inside to talk inside the home and have a meal. It was Hudson Taylor. See, here's what I think. I think if you're going to do what Jesus is saying here, it's going to look a little crazy. When I walked onto a high school campus at New Hanover High School as a 35-year-old male saying, I want to try to be your friend to a 16-year-old, It looked a little crazy. But you see, it looks a little crazy. It looks a little out of the box. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to say to his first century disciples. Guys, you're in this little bubble and you got to understand the very first thing I need you to learn is how to live for people outside the bubble. And you've got to go towards them and you've got to attach yourself to them and you've got to be a part of stopping the decay and darkness. And you might have to do it until you come home in a pine box. Their position was outsiders. Their posture, the leper and the centurion. Notice the posture. Verse 2, behold, a leper came to him and knelt before Jesus. The centurion, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. I mean, I greatly appreciate your offer. But, I mean, I understand the difference between the two of us. I, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm not the kind of person that's worthy of you coming to my house. 
And of course, this is the proper posture when you're coming to Jesus. They're not, they're not only aware of Jesus' greatness, they're aware of their unworthiness. It's not like, well, I'm okay, but Jesus is awesome. No, Jesus is awesome, and I'm not okay. I mean, it's a huge span. And these two people, they understand both. They understand their tremendous need for Jesus and Jesus' greatness. And, of course, their, their statements uh, or their posture is the same as what we see through the Bible. Isaiah, when he encounters, to the, encounters the Lord, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. What does John the Baptist say? There's somebody who's coming, whose sandals, I'm not even worth untying. Yet when you live in an entitlement culture, in case you didn't know, that's our culture. Where somehow you have in your mind, there's a bunch of things that people deserve and you deserve them. It's easy to forget that you're unworthy. And when you forget that you're unworthy and that everything you have is a gracious gift from God, when you forget that, you lose this posture of humility. And in your prayers, you may come towards God instead of thinking, well, maybe God's graciously going to give me what I'm asking for that I completely don't deserve. When you lose humility, you come towards God suspiciously, thinking God's withholding something that's rightfully mine. When you come in that way, just stop, just come to a full stop. I'm coming to God suspicious of God. I'm coming to God with an entitled attitude. I'm coming to God because he owes me. Just just recognizing that as your posture can help you break down that pride and move towards the right posture of humility. Most of the parents have heard this story before. I think it's a true story, but honestly, I don't know. I've used it a number of different times, but it's... True in the what it communicates. Parents of young children decide poorly to take their young children to out to eat. You ever done this? It's, it's too complicated, honey, to eat here. We don't have, let's go out to eat. Make it easy on everybody. Mm. Mm. One of the children decides they don't want to sit down and eat. They'd rather stand in the booth the whole time. And, you know, when that happens, that makes for a super relaxing meal for you as a parent. I mean, you just feel at peace when this is happening in the restaurant. They're looking on the other side of the booth at the other people. And, and eventually the father says, you know, if you don't sit down, you're not going to get any ice cream. Child remains standing after, after some time, just slowly, reluctantly, you know, starts sitting down. Meal's over, ice cream comes to the table. Everybody gets a dish except for that one child. Hey, I sat down. Which the father said, yeah, but you were standing up in your heart. I wonder what your posture is. Are you standing up in your heart? 
These two men, if you look at them, one is a leper and he has no power. One is a centurion and he has all power. And it's a way of God to say, God for saying, everybody has to come the same way. Number three, and maybe most importantly, faith. Both of these men express really marvelous jaw-dropping in case of the centurion faith. Notice and circle these phrases in verse 2, the leper's expression of his faith. If you will, circle that, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. This is a phrase that you can lift from the leper and use in your prayer. You, I, I'm the leper saying, Jesus, I know you can make me clean. I know you have the power to make me clean. I know you're sovereignly in control of all things, including my current condition, which is leprosy. I know that. I'm sure of that. But I need you to know I'm for whatever you will. What faith? I mean, this is stunning faith. Jesus, I know you have the power, and you know I want to be clean, but I want you to know I trust your will. Wow. Wow. The leper comes to Jesus humbly, submitting himself to Jesus' will to say to Jesus, whatever you will, that's good enough. See, because I know from Isaiah 55, my thoughts aren't your thoughts. I'm coming to you with my thoughts. You you want me to communicate my thoughts, but I know my thoughts aren't your thoughts. And in my ways, the way I think best working out, it may not be the best way you think it for it to work out. So whatever you will, I'm going to live underneath that. And again, I have to pause and just ask this question if, if what might come to Jesus' mind as he's hearing this incredible prayer of faith, Lord, I know you have power to do something on my behalf. I know I want you to do something on my, on my behalf, but not my will, but yours be done. Does that sound familiar? See, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prays the leper's prayer. And he hears it from the leper's lips here in Matthew 8. Jesus says, Father, I know you have power. I know you can take this bitter cup of suffering from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Both prayers, Jesus and the lepers, are answered. The centurion, his jaw-dropping faith, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Just, what does he say? I'm not worthy. All you have to do, this is so important, is what? Say the word. You say it with me. Say the word. This is huge. This is jaw-dropping. You just say the word. And and again, I don't know what's happening with Jesus. I know he's about ready to bust out. Because it says, this is so marvelous, I've never seen anything like it. But I think when this centurion's talking, fireworks are going off in Jesus' soul. He's like, if just Adam and Eve had believed this, 
If they had just said, whatever your word is, I don't care if a word's coming from the outside. I'm going to take your word. Maybe the centurion knew Deuteronomy 8. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Or the wise man from Proverbs 30, every word is of God is flawless. Or the songwriter of Psalm 119, I've put my hope in your word. And I just love it. I love this little pet piece in verse 9. Uh, G- the centurion is explaining to Jesus how this works. I just love when this happens. Don't you? I'm not, I'm not worthy of you coming under my roof. Just say the word. For, look, Jesus, this is how it works. I'm a man under authority, and I have soldiers under me. And, you know, when I say things, they do things. I, this is how it works down here. It's just informing Jesus of how it works. I think Jesus, just big smile. Big smile. Truly, amen in the Greek. He's giving this man an amen. I tell you the truth. I, I've never seen faith even from the insiders like this. The man on the outside is exhibiting greater faith in the word than the people on the inside. And he's just stunned by it. And the reason this is so critical in our culture, maybe the, the way it, it might impact where we are today is that we use the word faith quite frequently in the wrong way. Sometimes we treat it like a wish. I didn't study for my test, but I have faith that I'm going to pass. That's not faith. That's foolishness. I don't have the money to pay for this right now, but I have faith that it's going to come in the mail. That's not faith. That's stupid. But we somehow treat it like, like it's a wish. Or, this happens pretty frequently, Christians sometimes just come up with things. You ever notice this? We have a desire or a wish, so we assign it to God. We have faith that God is going to get me into this school. I have faith that God's going to get me into this relationship. I have faith that God's going to get me into this house. I have faith that God's going to get me into this job. I have faith that God's going to get me out of this sickness. I make something up that I really want and I assign it to God. And now he's got to come through. That's not faith. Faith is not giving God an assignment and then holding him to it. No, marvelous faith, jaw-dropping faith. Is whatever he says. That's what he's going to do. This is it. Not what you wish. And a few of us could be struggling right now with our faith in Jesus. Because he hasn't done something that we have assigned. And he's never promised to do that. I've struggled with that. Hudson Taylor, let me close with another story from him. He's much older now. He's in China. And people around him noticed that he would always whistle or sing tunes as a way to move through difficult times. And one of his favorite tunes was part of a hymn that says this, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. 
Hear that? I'm resting in who you are. Not in my circumstances, not in anything. I'm just, I find all my rest that you exist. I'm finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Some around him could hardly understand his biographer would say his joy and rest, especially when fellow workers were in danger. One time a Mr. Nichols recalls when a series of letters had arrived which brought serious rioting in two different missionary stations. And they knew the missionaries in these stations were at risk. Standing at his desk, Mr. Taylor mentioned what was happening and that immediate help was necessary. Feeling, Mr. Nichols saying, feeling that he might wish to be alone, I was about to withdraw when to my surprise, someone began to whistle. It was the soft refrain of some of the well-loved hymns, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. Turning back, Mr. Nichol could not help but exclaim to Hudson Taylor, how can you whistle when our friends are in such danger? <laughs> Would you have me be anxious in trouble, Hudson Taylor said? You want me to trade my resting in Jesus for anxiety and trouble? Is that what you're asking? Mr. Nichols never forgot that little phrase, that little lesson. That would not help them, he says. It certainly wouldn't help me. I have just to roll the burden on the Lord. Day and night, that was a secret, just to roll the burden on the Lord. Frequently, those who were wakeful in this little house might hear at two or three o'clock in the morning the soft refrain of Mr. Taylor's favorite hymn. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. Hudson Taylor had learned the secret that only one life was possible for him. That life was the life of faith, resting and rejoicing in the Lord in all circumstances. On the storm-tossed waters where the disciples were about ready to drown, Jesus says, what? Where is your faith? Where is your faith? Anxious, disturbed, concerned about situations and you just can't get away from it and you just live in that anxiety or have you somehow stepped outside of that and said Jesus I'm just resting in who you are and I have desires and I'm going to pray about those desires but no matter what I will your will be done let's pray together Lord we come and wow what a conversation to eavesdrop on pray that we would come in this right posture of humility that we wouldn't be standing up in our hearts pray that we would really have faith and that faith would cause us to do things that might look a little crazy whistle in the midst of dire circumstances reach out and attach ourselves to darkness Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.